0: So good morning. It is uh, really a privilege uh, for Lisa and me and my daughters here. We're, we're grateful to be here. Uh, I've had a bit of a relationship with this church that you may or may not know about. I was good friends with Scott Bridges while he was here. That goes back to before the time of the automob- automobile, and uh, and we just we had good fellowship and really enjoyed one another. Uh, as brothers in Christ, and then uh, Santa Barbara Community Church is where I pastored for 39 years. I know you don't think I look over 40, but uh, <laughs> but uh, that our two churches have had just a lot of uh, warmth together, and we've kept you in prayer, and I hope you're keeping that church in prayer. So it's great to be here. Been looking forward to this. Well, uh, there is a lot of chatter out there on the blog sphere and in books and so on uh, about spirituality, about finding God. So the Buddhist meditates to find God. The mountain climber climbs a mountain uh, hoping to see something of God. You remember the cosmonaut back in the 60s, those of us who were older, uh, uh, Yuri Garen. You remember that name? He was the guy who said, I went out to outer space and and I didn't see God. Uh, Abraham Heschel wrote a book called Man's Quest for God. People want to go into nature to see God. I was inviting a guy to come to a church service uh, up at Hollister Ranch. I was surfing one day, and, and uh, he said, This is all the church I need. But he was finding God, evidently, in the surf. Back in the 60s, people took drugs to find God. In his book Miracles, 1947, C.S. Lewis said, In fact, we don't really want to find God. We want to find someone. That's impersonal. Here's what he said. Uh, chapter 11, if you want to find it in the book Miracles, he said, We love an abstract, impersonal deity, but never the true living God. This is the taproot of pantheism. The pantheist God does nothing and demands nothing. He is there, if you wish for him, like a book on the shelf. But he will not pursue you. There is no danger that you have to flee from his glance. Now listen, this is one of the famous passages from uh, Lewis. He says, an impersonal God, well, well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, goodness inside of our heads. Better still. A formless life force surging through us like a vast power which we can tap. Well, that's the best of all, but God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, the hunter, king, husband, ah, that's quite a different matter. (laughs) Listen to this line. Listen to his analogy. He says, there comes a moment when the children who have been playing at burglars hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep we heard in the hallway? And now he makes the analogy. There a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion suddenly drop back, supposing we really found him. We never meant it to come to that. We're still supposing he found us. Well, we're going to go to a passage in the Old Testament today. It's a supernatural passage. And if you're new to the pages of the scriptures, I want to tell you, Uh, The Bible is really easy to understand if you can get over the third word. In the beginning, God. And if you can get past that third word, the rest is child's play, okay? But we're going to see a time when God came down. And it's just like this little quote in the Book of Miracles, we never meant it to come to that. Now, let me give you, what grade are you in? Seventh grade. I'm going to give you a three-part history of Israel, okay? You like history? course, you don't like history. You're in seventh grade. You do like history. Oh, good. Uh, have you read Barbara Tuckman's book about the 14th century? No, I don't. <laughs> um, Here's a three part summary of Israel's history, okay? Part one 400 years in Egypt, maybe 430 years. And that, at the end of that time, they become a slave people, okay? That's part one. This will be on the test tomorrow. Part three they go into the land of promise. And they lived there for about 1,500 years until the Romans kicked them out of the land of promise, okay? You got part one and part three? Part two is a 40-year period called the Exodus. Israel is delivered from Egypt, they get out of Egypt, they cross the Red Sea, and with that... I'm going to ask you to stand, and I'm going to, uh, in a minute, uh, I'm going to ask you to do something that's very counterintuitive. I'm going to ask you to, for the moment, just keep your Bibles closed, and then I'm going to want you to open them. But I want you to hear God's Word. The Bible was written primarily to be heard originally, and so just listen, and then we'll open to Exodus 19, okay? Let's stand uh, for the reading of God's Word. This is Exodus chapter 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out from the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness in Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness and encamped there. Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourself saw what I did to the Egyptians and bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a king of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. The people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, I am going to come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set limits all around for the people, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him. He shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a loud blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So... Moses went down the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. Moses said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and the sound of a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the smoke of it, it went up like a smoke of a kiln And the whole mountain trembled greatly. Moses spoke and God answered in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. In church... This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Amen. Now, turn in your Bibles to Exodus 19. Pretty good story, huh? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. We're going to look at this in, in three paragraphs. Preparing for the fire. Experiencing the fire. And then thirdly, the need for new fire. Well, if you notice, verses 1 and 2, they're kind of repetitious, aren't they? The word wilderness comes up three times, and we read right over this. They've come to the wilderness in Sinai. And again, we're sort of geographically challenged. We live in Santa Barbara and Goleta and wherever else around here. But uh, the people had left Egypt with the promise of going to a land flowing with milk and honey, a promised land. And if you look at the back of your Bible at a map this afternoon, you'll see that the people of Israel are far, farther away from the land of promise than when they began. Furthermore, to be in the wilderness, we wait in line to get a wilderness permit so we can go backpacking in the Grand Canyon or somewhere and everybody else wants to go and we say, ah, I got the permit, it's so exciting. But the word wilderness in the Bible uh, speaks of it, a place you don't want to go. It's a place where you might die, It's, it's a dangerous place. So there they are, in the wilderness, far away from where they want to be. By the way, this mirrors our experience, doesn't it? When we come to Christ, and we've maybe been told by a preacher, or by a church, or by a book, or by a seminar, that, you know, if you come to Christ, it's all going to be really good, right? You ever hear that? And, And then we look around a year later, and we say, golly, milk and honey, are you kidding me? As I just told you, I was a pastor of Santa Barbara Community Church for 39 years, and once in a while, someone would come into our church, and I'd be chatting up with them afterwards or before, and they'd say, yeah, I love this church, but I could never be a part of it, which is always really fun to hear. You're like, oh, was it something I said? And and the the follow-up is, no, all these people here, they've got it all together. They're so good-looking, and their life is good, and mine's not. Yeah. And, and uh, I would be maybe gazing through the conversation, I'd say, Oh, well, that one over there, uh, she's worried about her husband's early dementia. And that guy over there, he just... Uh, well, he ruined his car because he was drunk and then he was arrested. And, and that couple over there, they just checked their child into a, a facility for wayward children. And she, well, she's got cancer that might take her life. And there's a lot of Sinai in the church, isn't there? I mean, I know, I know in a room this size, uh, many of us are in Sinai right now and we're looking up, we're saying, Lord, I I thought I was going that way, but I'm over here. Now, I want you to see something in the passage itself. Sinai is not an accident and neither is your Sinai, your, your suffering. This is not an unnecessary stop along the way. It's not a waste of time. God is in perfect control. Forty years earlier, in this very place, the Lord had told Moses, you and your friends are going to worship me on this mountain. This is part of God's design. And our suffering, while painful, is part of God's providence it was in this wilderness that God forms his covenant with the people. It is here that God marries his people and they marry him. Now, Moses functions as a mediator between the people. And I don't know if you noticed, but uh, in this passage, Moses went up and down the mountain three times. And by the end of the next couple of chapters, he will make seven trips up the mountain. Just kind of picture going up to Macumber uh, Peak seven times. That's sort of what Moses is doing. And the people are camped down below. Well, in verses three to six, there's a lot we could say, but I want you to just notice three truths. We've just sung about these and you got to see them in the text. Uh, three truths about God himself in this, this relationship with his people. You got to see it. First of all, it's all his work. He is the one who initiates everything. God is the one who calls to Moses from the mountain God sends Moses back to the people. God is the one who says, I took care of the Egyptians. I brought you on eagle's wings. I brought you to myself. In other words, Israel, you didn't earn this. You got a free ride. Your relationship with me, God says, is my business. I'm the one who reached out to you. But after that, God then expresses his requirements If you will indeed, verse 5, obey my voice and keep my covenant. So when we enter into relationship with God, yes, it is all grace. But once we are in, God says, hey, if we're going to be married, I've got some expectations of you. Obedience on our part, hear this, is not a bargain that we make with God. It is our grateful response to what God has already done. Anyone who's married knows about this. Lisa and I got married 38 years ago. And, uh, you know, we pledged our troth to one another. I didn't know what troth was when I was standing there, but I thought if, if I get her for saying troth, yeah, I'll, I'll pledge my troth. <laughs> and we've had a great 38 years, but, you know, you, you enter in, I was never more married than I was at that moment. But in the context of marriage, as we love and serve and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ... There are delights in marriage that can only be experienced in that way. This is what God is telling his people. If you obey me, you're going to be my treasured possession among all the peoples of the earth. God makes these promises. He initiates, he requires, and he promises that you will be my treasured possession. Okay, Moses goes down the mountain he gets the elders. He talks with the people. And look at verse 7 wh- with me. In the ESV it says, Moses brought all these words to the elders. And You say, what words? This will help you understand the book of Exodus. If You're reading along in the narrative and all of a sudden there are a few chapters of a bunch of laws that are inserted. And that's called by scholars the book of the covenant, the agreement that the people make with God. And a lot of Old Testament scholars would say right here is where Moses brings all these words, the book of the covenant to the elders and the people. And the people say, yeah, we're in. We will do that. They say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Don't miss it. They don't make a bargain with God. They don't say, well, we'll keep six of the Ten Commandments, the ones we would have kept anyway. <laughs> no, it's unilateral. It's not deal-making. We are meeting, as we're going to see, with the God who comes in the fire, the God who comes in holiness, and our response is unilateral. Now, the emphasis from God to Moses is that he is going to descend on Sinai, on this mountain, and the people had better be prepared. Hear this. When the God who comes in fire shows up, you better be in the right place or you're going to get burned. That's what the passage says. It's a little colloquial, colloquial the way I said it, but two emphases here. One is the holiness of God. Keep your distance. Don't get too close. Put that yellow tape around the bottom of uh, Lacumber Peak. Don't get too close. And consecration. Look at verse 9 and look at verse 11. God announces to Moses in both those verses that he's going to descend on Mount Sinai in the presence of the people. And in verse 12, stay back. Now, we again can read right over this and say, well, yeah, that sounds like something God would say. You've got to know something. This is so different from the Canaanite religions to where the Israelites were going. They're going into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Jebusites, Perizzites, Ammonites, Amorites, and all the other ites, right? And they're going in, and all those people were... Um, Baalistic. They worship the Baal gods. Baal is the rain god. Now, the way you got to go worship in Baalism is not like Presbyterianism. They went up on the mountain and did what only married people should do. Okay, can I put it like that? You got me? And the goal was, Baal was asleep usually, and the goal was to attract Baal's attention and see this fertility right on top of the mountain. And thus, the Baal God would see it and send rain and they'd get crops. So you can imagine the seeker-sensitive, user-friendly worship. <laughs> this is the exact opposite. Stay away. God is Holy. Get too close and you will be burned. Now, fire and the holiness of God are often closely aligned in the Bible. When Adam and Eve sin, they have to flee from the garden and God puts fire at the edges because ostensibly that's where he he dwells. They can't come back. When God enters into a covenant with Abraham, fire between the halves of the animals. When God first appears to Moses, fire in the bush. Fire when the tabernacle is completed in Exodus chapter 40. But watch this. In each of these instances and many others, I'm going to make an overstatement here. To some extent, the fire is manageable. I mean, Moses approaches the burning bush. But not here. This is unmanageable, unforgettable, raging inferno. If you look at verse 18 in the ESV, it says the whole mountain trembled greatly. Most translations translate that the whole mountain trembled violently. And as we heard from Hebrews a few minutes ago, Moses trembled in fear. So to prepare for God's presence, the people are to consecrate themselves. They're to wash their clothes. And that strange little verse in verse 15, don't go near a woman. I think that is written for parents of high school boys who are going on their first date. But uh, not really. I just made that up. Consecration is preparing ourselves for the holiness of God. And you say, boy, I'm sure glad we don't have to do that. Actually, we do. And we're going to do it in a few minutes. When the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church and he says, talking about the Lord's Supper, he says, before you come, examine yourself. Confess your sins and prepare yourself for the holiness of God. Well, the second paragraph comes up in verses 16 to 20, not preparing for the fire, but experiencing the fire. What happens? God comes down The mountain is wrapped in smoke. The mountain trembles greatly. The the sound of the trumpet grows louder and louder. Moses speaks with God. God answers in thunder. Do you know what happens next? Is your Bible open? Turn one page over to chapter 20. Look at verse 18 with me. Now all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpets, And the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, Listen to this. You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Wow, you hear it? No more, Moses. We don't ever want that to happen again. The people are coming to grasp the weighty nature of their own sin when measured against the holiness of God. (laughs) I love this. I think it was the first or second song we sang this morning. I wrote down one of the lines. He is holy, judging the wicked. It's true. If you got the email... This Friday, I quoted J.C. Ryle in there, and Ryle says this. He's an Anglican pastor, died in 1900, if you want a little perspective. He says, I do not think in the nature of things that mortal man can at all realize the exceeding sinfulness of sin in the sight of that holy and perfect one with with whom we have to do. (laughs) I love this. He says, The very animals whose smell is most offensive to us, they have no idea that they are offensive And are not offensive to one another. And man, fallen man, I believe, can have no just idea what a vile thing sin is in the sight of that God whose handiwork is absolutely perfect. one of the marks of being touched by God is an awareness of sin. We tend to think of our sin as a trifling matter. I was a soccer referee for a number of years, and, and one of the goals of a soc- soccer referee is to keep the game going, and once in a while, there's a slight infraction on the field, and the, re- the ref will often use the vocabulary word trifling. You know, the players look up they their horrible injustice that's been committed, and the ref says trifling, which means, I saw it, it's no big deal, play soccer. You spoil it, little babies. <laughs> We think of our sin like that, but think of Exodus 19 where the people say to Moses, Exodus 20, don't let that happen again, Moses. We don't want to see it. The God of the Bible is so unlike the God of the American church. We think of God sometimes like a heavenly Albert Schweitzer who does nice things to people in Africa. Or maybe God is like Bill Gates who has a lot of money and his goal is just to give it all away. Or maybe God is the mush God who will make no demands on us. But when we meet this God, the God who comes in this fire, we get acquainted with our own stuff and we tremble. Okay. Unforgettable fire, right? Good name for it. Any. U2 fans here, remember they had a remember the album Unforgettable, one of their better albums, wouldn't you think? That was I thought it was named after Exodus 19. That was named after Hiroshima, but I always thought it was this chapter. I did a little research. <laughs> what, let me ask you a question: What do you think you would have thought had you been there this day? And I, and I that's what I mean. What, what do you think you would have thought had you been there this day? let me tell you what I think I would have thought. If I'd been there and seen the smoke and, and seen the mountain tremble and trembled myself and, and maybe seen my dear Moses tremble, I think I would have thought, wow, this is an experience that will forever change me. This trumpet, this smoke, this, this fire, I am changed forever. I've been so close to the holiness of God that I will never be the same. Would, would you agree with me that you might have thought the same thing if you'd been there? Grunt, groan if you agree with me. Yeah. yeah, good. OK. I would think man, no more complaining for me, no more temptation to worship false gods, no more sexual sin, no more gossip, no more gluttony, no more greed. I am fixed. Get this: we've just read of the first three. Ascents of Moses up the mountain. In the fourth ascent, he receives further instructions for the people. In the fifth ascent up the mountain, you know what happens? God gives him these two tablets and he writes his law on the tablets. Are you familiar with this story? There's a movie made about it in the 60s. <laughs> and Moses comes down with the mountain, he's been there 40 days. And these people who trembled at the foot of the mountain, these people, they get so bored in 40 days that they take off their earrings and their nose rings. By the way, did you see Joshua this morning? He got rid of his nose ring. Uh, That's not anything to do with the teaching today, They take off their gold, they give their gold to Aaron, who who melts it down, fashions their gold into a golden calf. And Aaron, the second in command in Israel, he holds up the calf and he says to Israel, Behold your God. The one sin that Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, could never tolerate is right here. Idolatry. Idolatry. And then they begin to engage in a Baalistic orgy together as a nation. Can you imagine? Just weeks, perhaps months after this event, the nation is lapsing into idolatry. And Moses is so incensed, he, he, break, he throws the book at them. That's where we get the phrase. He breaks the tablets, he grinds them into powder, he puts it in the water supply, and they drink it. And that begins a period. We're going to look at this on August 18th. Uh, I I get to come back. So thank you for that. But uh, that begins a period of Moses interceding for the people. God says to Moses, I'm going to kill all of them and start over with you. You get to be the new Abraham. That's his wrath. And Moses intercedes again and again for the people. What's the point? What's the third paragraph? There is a need For new, lasting fire. You with me? Just weeks, perhaps months after this event, the people go into gross idolatry. The fire was not enough. So many of us think, if I could just see a miracle, or if I could just see something of God, I would be forever changed. You wouldn't. You would not. It's right here. Now go ahead and ask me the question, where in the passage is the new fire? It's not. <laughs> we have to wait 1,400 years for the new fire. Moses is talking to the people in the book of Deuteronomy. A little more Old Testament for you. You got the history of Israel, I'll give you this one. Genesis, say it with me. Genesis. Yeah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Originally, one book. Meant to be thought of as one book. That last of those books, Deuteronomy, is a series of sermons given by Moses to the people right before they go across the river Jordan into the land of promise. And there's a lamentation in that book over and over again about the fact that the people don't have the right heart to worship God consistently. God says to the people in Deuteronomy chapter 5, oh that they, oh that the people had such a heart as this always to fear me And to keep my commandments, that it might go well with them and their descendants forever. But they don't. I wish they did have the right heart, but they don't. So God says, through Moses, chapter 30, verse 6 of Deuteronomy, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. That's good news. And the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. So there's a promise at the end, it's going to get better. And Moses begins to talk about a coming one who is like himself but infinitely better, a Messiah. And the book virtually concludes with these words, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. So where's the fire in the passage? Well, it's not there. It's a part of the greater story. There is a new Moses, who gives his law from a mountain in Galilee, but this new Moses dies on another mountain in Jerusalem called Golgotha, the greater Moses. And the fire and the storm and the clouds and the smoke and the trembling mountain are replicated in Matthew's gospel. You remember? When Jesus dies, there's darkness, there's an earthquake, there's a a cloud shielding the holiness of God. You remember, remember that? You say, where's that? Well, Matthew points out that there is a veil over the Holy of Holies in the temple. And when Jesus dies, the veil is torn. As if to say, come on in. Now, if you're listening carefully, you're saying, well, that's good, Reed. Where's the fire? You haven't said anything about fire. Where does the fire come? The fire comes 50 days later. This will blow your mind. It blew my mind. I I didn't discover it until this week. Israel leaves Egypt when? Passover. The text is very clear. They came into Sinai on the third new moon after they left. It's 50 days later. It's called the Feast of Weeks. That's also called the Feast of Pentecost, which celebrates the giving of the law. Jesus dies. 40 days later, he ascends to the Father. 10 days later, what happens? Fire. The Feast of Pentecost. And the Lord descends this time, not on a mountain in Sinai, he descends on God's people. And they are forever changed. The fickle Peter is now a man of steel because they've been born again. They've experienced the fire. Okay, the main point of everything I've tried to say this morning is this, that a vision of God's glory and holiness may be really great, and I hope you have one. It may startle you, it may stun you, it may scare you, but it will not sustain you. What you need, what I need, is God's enduring presence in our lives. We need to be born again. As I've said a couple of times already, and I won't say it again, but I was a pastor for a long time, and I would look out over the people of the church, and I thought, which ones of these are simply showing up? Singing the songs, maybe giving their money, spending some time. But they've never met the living God of the universe. And I just want to ask you, have you met this Christ? Have you bowed at this mountain and, and, and confessed your sins and said, said, Lord, I need that circumcised heart. I need to be born again. I'm not holding up some certain experience. I mean, some of us meet God at camp. I had a friend in seminary who met God while he was smoking marijuana. Don't try that at home. <laughs> so I, I'm not holding up some particular experience, but have you submitted your life to Christ? If you haven't, if, you've, if you're just doing well at religion, I just want to encourage you to come to this mountain that cannot be touched. And confess your sins and come into his righteousness. It's his work. Let him do it for you. For others in this room, yeah, we're there. We've been born again and again and again, and you got, you become a Christian 55 times. Okay, where are you? Do you need to again come and say, Lord, I want your touch. Give me your Holy Spirit and be glorified in my life. What is crucial is that we meet God. But what is infinitely more crucial is that he touches us, that he meets us. So let's pray together. Let's ask God's blessing in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this Awesome passage, truly awesome passage where you came down. But Lord, thank you so much more for Christ himself who came and suffered and died and then came again in the person of the Holy Spirit. Lord, fill us with your presence with yourself. I want to pray for any in this room who has never bowed his knee or her knee to you that that those men and women and young people would come to know you in a saving way. Uh, We pray that in the name of Christ and for his glory. And God's people said, Amen.